Let's look at uh, Romans 8. Romans 8, text we read a few minutes ago in the last nine verses of that chapter. What beautiful words these are, you know? Love this text. Good to see you. Hope you're doing well. Had a good weekend and I'm glad you're here to study with us and worship with us today. We studied last week, as I mentioned earlier, about trusting God, you know, how we face difficulties and the older I get, the more experience, the more I think and study scripture and where I realize life's hard and life's tough and you're going to face some things that are really difficult. And we're, we're, we're riddled by anxiety a lot, too, because of that. We don't, we don't know how things are going to turn out exactly. We don't know what this test result is going to show. We, we don't know how the, how the kids are going to respond to different challenges they face. We, we don't know how the economy is going to go. We don't know what's going to happen in the Middle East. We don't know what's going to happen with the volatile political situation we find ourselves in or with race relations or with uh, all sorts of things going on. We, we struggle with different things. We wonder, you know, what in the world's going on and, and how can we have something to hang on to that will give me some sort of substance, some, some sort of foundation that helps me to stand up with all these, all these different things going on, you know? And the answer to that is, for us as believers, for us as Christians, we believe the answer to be we ought to trust God. That's almost a cliche, you know. We ought to trust God. Everybody in here believes that if you're here today out of choice. Some of you may be here because your parents made you come. I don't know. But you're here today. You probably have this kind of conviction. This conviction is, I want to trust God. I believe in God. I believe that he's in control. I believe he's all loving. I believe all these things I'm supposed to believe about him. I believe that, you know, all these these big words that you, you read about, if you read a a book about the attributes of God. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. He can do anything. Nothing, God, God never faced a challenge. And, and you said, well, I'd like to fix that, but I can't. I don't have the power to. That doesn't happen with God because he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows everything. So there's nothing out there that's going on in your life God doesn't know about. It's not like you're dealing with this private thing. You haven't said anything to anybody about it. And so God's just unaware. Don't have that kind of issue. God knows what's going on. He's omniscient. We also trust that the God we serve is an omnibenevolent God, and that is he's all-loving. He is a God who's looking out for the best interest of his creation. We'll study about that a little bit this morning. So you believe that, that, that you don't have to worry if, you know, God is acting in your life in a way that's consistent with what's best for you. You don't have to think, well, I know God is in control, but I think God may be selfish. Maybe he's doing this because he wants it to be done and not because it's better for, for me in the long run in some kind of ultimate sense. You don't have to think about that because God's omnibenevolent. So you've got a lot of other things. God is, in, God is infinite. That is, he has no beginning. He has no end. God is uh, lots, of, lots of attributes concerning God. But I want you to focus with me this morning on, on, on how, do you, how do you make this real? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume a couple things this morning. I'm going to assume, at least I'm going to be talking to you for the most part, assuming that you believe in God, that you believe that that the stuff I just said about him is true. You believe he is omnipotent, omniscient, and all-loving. You believe that stuff about him. And so that's part of your confession, part of your relationship to this being is you, you confess those things about him. So I'm going to make that kind of assumption this morning, that you believe it on some sort of an intellectual plane. And really where we're going to go from there is, having believed that, since we believe that, since that's part of our confession, why do we still have anxiety? Why do we still worry about things? Why do we struggle with obeying commands from God that we don't understand? Lord, I know you said this, but it doesn't make sense to me, therefore I'm going to do it my way. Why do we do that? Why do we lie awake at night 
Why, don't, why are we awake sometimes at 3 o'clock in the morning worrying about some sort of situation? How it's going to work out at work? Or our kids just can't wait for the, the MRI, the PET scan to come back. Why do we worry? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not casting stones here. I'm, I'm collectively, corporately, as, as the church, why do we? That's really something that, to wrestle with, I think. So with this kind of confession that we, we believe about God intellectually, then, then why don't we, why doesn't, why doesn't the, the kind of life that we want to live flow out of that kind of conviction? So there's, there's something that's disjointed here. There's, there's some, sort of, some sort of link in the chain is broken somewhere along the path, right? So we're going to see if we can't figure out where that link, that broken link is, if we can't do a little bit of fixing of that link as we study this text. So in Romans 8, he starts out in verse 31 in our little paragraph by asking this, this question, a couple of questions. What then shall we say to these things? And then the one that is on the screen behind me is, if God is for us, who can be against us? If that kind of God is for us, who in the world can get in his way? What kind of God is that? Well, Paul's just said a whole lot of things about that God, some stuff about God that is just almost unbelievable. I mean, we believe it, but we don't understand it fully. If God is for us, what kind of God, an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient God, if that kind of God is for us, Paul says, who can be against us? What in the world can get in the path of that kind of God and say, God, you're not going to do this? What kind of thing, what kind of entity, being, person, thing, object, immaterial thing, whatever it is, what, 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 what kind of thing out there can get in the way of that kind of God? If God is for us, if God, if that kind of God is on our side, that's one way to translate that, by the way. If a God like that is on our side, if that kind of God is for us, then who can be against us? And if you go through this text, you'll notice he lists a lot of different things. We're going to come back to 32 in a minute. But he goes on and he says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who's, who's going to stand up before God on judgment day and say, you know what? I got something, I got, God, I got something you haven't thought about with reference to Chuck. And God says, oh, I didn't even, I didn't know that. It's an interesting point. You, you don't have that, you have to worry about somebody standing up and making an accusation against you, against God. Who's going to do that? Nobody's going to do that. It's God who justifies. God's the one who, who declared you just, righteous, and, and you, you're on right standing with God. God's the one who declares that. Nobody's going to question it. Who is to condemn? Who's going to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died and was raised. He's at the right hand of God interceding for us, 34. Verse 35, so then these beautiful words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. He's probably speaking about things that his readers would have faced or at least worried about facing, things he had faced personally. He goes on down and he says in verse 38 and 39, I, I am sure that neither, look at these couplets, neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, nor powers, that one stands by itself, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. If I left anything out, Paul says, then that thing is, is included in that last statement. So you think about this, and I was just jotting down some things this week as I was thinking about things that you and I might struggle with because he starts talking about tribulation or distress or persecution. Is there anybody in your life who has, 
declared you as one of his or her enemies? Is there somebody in your life who constantly tries to put obstacles between you and faithfulness? Is there anybody out there who tries to direct your attention away from God? God, God is saying that that person, that person who brings about these, these, these careless words or these hateful words cannot separate you from the love of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall cancer, marital strife, rebellious children, economic downturns, 10% drop in the Dow. What can separate us from the love of Christ? That's what he's saying here. And you know the answer that he's giving us. What can separate us from the love of Christ? I want, I want to pause just for a second and, and really ask you to do something. What is it in your life that you would put in there? Tribulation? I guess that's a pretty broad word. Distress? Persecution? You got people making life difficult. Famine? So, so problems with your job? You, you, you've lost a job. You don't know if this job is going to play out. You, you don't know if I, after you get out of college you're going to have a job. Nakedness, danger, sword, things, bad things happening. But, but pause for a minute. And really, I'd, I'd like for you to make this kind of personal. What is that one thing, two things? What, what is that thing in your life that has drawn you away from truly believing that God loves you more than you can even fathom? What, what is that thing? Just answer that to yourself. What has kept you awake at night? What's caused you to have stomach problems? What's caused you to have trouble praying? What's caused you to be anxious or discouraged or depressed? What about the future worries you? What is that thing? What is that thing? Paul is saying, and by the way, I, I think all of us have that thing, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying... I doubt any of us have gotten to a point where, where we can say, you know what? I don't ever have the slightest bit of anxiety. We're probably not quite there yet. So we're, we're all there somewhere. But just, I, think, I think it's a pretty important exercise to start trying to figure out what that, what that thing is. And then ask myself and ask yourself this question. Do I think God can't take care of it? Probably not. I think my fear, your fear, might be that God will take care of it, but he won't take care of it in the way that I want him to. I think that's it. Because whatever this deal is, maybe God wants me to go through that thing. Maybe he wants me to deal with cancer or job loss or losing a family member or... I don't know, maybe, or maybe not God wants us to, but maybe God is going to allow that to happen because it's within his will in some way he wants to bring about this character trait or whatever, I don't know. But maybe, maybe it's not that we don't trust that God can take care of it. We believe that he can. We believe that he has our best interests at heart, but we're afraid of what that might involve. I think that probably gets a little bit closer to, to the truth. We're afraid of what that might involve. 
Paul is dealing with people who are struggling with that same thing. And that's why he's just spent some time in the previous verses talking about God's plan and how God works things and he works things out. Go back to, if you've if you got your Bible open in your lap or on your tablet or phone or whatever, go back up, scroll back up to verse 28. And this is a famous verse quoted, quoted, quoted over and over again. Maybe it's sometimes taken out of context, but it does have some great, great comfort here. Look at it. Reading from the ESV, you may have a slightly different rendering here, but verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean you pray on your way to the mall and God's going to get you a parking spot right up front. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you have kids and... They're never going to roll their eyes at you. They're never going to question what you say. They're always going to do what you want them to do. Doesn't mean that. So don't trivialize it. And also don't make, it, make, don't make the good thing something that is good from the perspective of your own limited finite perspective. But man, this verse says something a lot better than that. Something a whole lot better than that. This is, this is an incredible promise. And your, your Bible may switch it around, and in some ways I like it better, and I've got a footnote that says this. It says, and God works all things together for good. I kind of like that better because I think it puts the focus where the focus ought to be. But even in the passive sense, the way the ESV puts it, all things work together for good, you know, that's kind of more of a passive way. That's, a, that's, that's what's called a divine passive in the Bible. A divine passive is when it doesn't put God in the active place, but it's implied that he's there because you read this and you know who's doing the acting here, and it's not you. So all things work together for good, or God works all things together for good. It doesn't matter which way your Bible says it. It's saying the same thing, and that is who works all things together for good? Who makes sure that everything works out for good? Not you, because you don't even know what the good is a lot of the times. I don't know what the good is all the time because I don't have this find this infinite perspective where I can stand outside of my life and think, okay, this is how all this stuff's going to work out. You ever had those kinds of realizations? You wonder in the moment, what in the world is God doing? I don't understand why he's making me go through this. What in the world? And then at some point, maybe, maybe you don't get this clarity until the end time, but maybe at some point in your life, you get this moment of clarity where you look back and you think, ah, oh, why couldn't I see that? You couldn't see it because you're a human being who's finite. God knew it all along. So what's, what's Paul talking about in this whole thing where distress and tribulation, persecution, all those things can't take away from the love of Christ because he knows what verse 28 says, and that is God is a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipotent God who stands outside of your life, looks down on you, knows what makes you tick, knows everything about you, knows what's best for you, knows how your life's going to work out, knows about all these contingencies, all these various situations you're going to find yourself in, all these challenges you're going to face in the future. God knows all this stuff, and because he's infinite, he can work all that out without my help and your help, and he can work all that out and bring about what? Your and my ultimate good. How does he do that? I don't know. And I certainly, and you certainly don't know in the moment how he's going to do that. Because we don't even, we don't know all these contingencies. We don't know about this path or that path, how this person's going to act, what situation I'm going to face here. We don't know all that, but God is standing outside of time. He's omnip omniscient. He knows all. He's omnipotent. He can manipulate our lives through his work. 
and he's omnibenevolent. He wants all this stuff to work out for your and my ultimate good. That's the God we believe in. Now, I want to spend a few minutes practically wrestling with some things practically. My guess is you believe all that. I'm going to assume that you do. You believe it all intellectually. You believe that we serve an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient God. But you have a hard time living that out. Most of us do. So how do, you, how do you get closer? How do we take a couple steps? For the last few minutes, we're going to be together in this portion of our worship time today. How do you take a few steps closer to realizing the kind of life God wants you to live? I want to suggest four things. These are the four blanks in the back of the bulletin if you're there, if you're following along. There are four blanks, and here are the four things. Number one, how do you, how do, you do this? How do I experience this? How do I embrace this? I believe it intellectually, but how do I believe it practically? How do I believe it if you remember from last week, how do I believe it volitionally? Like, how do I want this? How do I believe this emotionally? How do I feel this? Four things. Number one, we live with him. We live with him. Some of you could get up here, and I know this is true, and you could preach this portion of the sermon a whole lot better than I can, because you could get up here and you could say, Church, Church, let me tell you about something that happened to me a couple years ago. You could come up here and give a testimony about something God did in your life 10, 15 years ago. You could say, church, you know, I was going through this specific situation. You could give some of the details maybe about it, this health issue, this relationship problem, this addiction, this, I don't know, something. Some distress, tribulation, persecution, one of those eight, ten things, Paul. You, you could say, you know, church, I was dealing with this. And let me tell you what God did. Let me tell you what God did. And where I am right now is not because I'm good or because I got it all right. But let me tell you something, church. This is where I was and this is where I am now by the grace of God. You know what that is? That's living with God. That's living with God. A couple of Bible examples of that, though, though I'm guessing we've got dozens of those stories in this church this morning. And, and I, you know, I, I know some of them, I don't know them all, but I know some of you have dealt with some things because you've told me and you've shared with me your faith in, in God has just grown exponentially in the last few years in the last 10, 15 years because you've seen the hand of God working. I've heard some of those stories. I think it'd be good for us to just spend time with one another so we hear them. So collectively, we, we can kind of experience one another's stories as a church. I think that's part of the reason we're the church and not just individuals living our own separate Christian lives. We, we share these stories together, you know, so we can kind of experience them together. So, but but you've, got a, you've got some Bible stories. I mean, you've got a lot of Bible stories. I, I think it's interesting to trace, to trace the life of Abraham from Genesis 12 and on to the end of his life. And you've got Abraham at times, he's questioning God. I don't understand God. I don't understand. What in the world? Leave my family, leave my homeland, go to this place I don't even know. At times, Abraham seems a man of faith. At times, he seems like something else. You had this moment in his life where God has you know, promised him all these kids, these generations that will follow him. And Abraham's getting old and he has no kids. And so he gets to a point where he and Sarah, you know, concoct this plan where, well, initially God said, Lord, just take this servant. I'm not going to have any kids, obviously. I'm too old. Take this servant. Let him be the son. 
God says, no, you have a son. So time passes, and Abraham then and Sarah come up with a plan. You know, we're going to, Sarah says, take, take my servant, take this, this woman, Hagar, and, and, and have a child through her. Abraham's good with a plan, and so they, they, they go that way. So what this is is they don't trust God, you know. At that moment, they don't trust him. Lord, how in the world are you going to work this out? You promised me a great nation, and I'm nearly 100 years old, and I don't have any kids. So how's this going to work? They take things in their own hands, try to do it for God. But then over time, after that son of promise, Isaac is later born, God worked everything out, and, and he is grown or getting grown. And God says, Genesis 22, he says, I want you to take that son Isaac, your only son, the one you love, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice on one of those mountains I'll show you. You remember Abraham's response? We don't read about anything that he experienced emotionally or whatever. I don't know exactly what was going on in his head, but all we know is Abraham was about to do exactly what God asked him to do. And I think that's a pretty good example. God stopped him, if you remember that story. But I think that's a pretty good example of a man who at times struggled with his face faith, but after he had walked with God for a certain period of time, he finally got to a point where he recognized God is trustworthy and he is faithful and he's in control. And when he makes a promise, he keeps that promise and I need to stop doubting him. And so I'm just going to learn to walk with him and I'm going to learn to do what he tells me to do, even when I don't understand why. That is living with God. You don't know this when you come up out of the waters of baptism. You may not know it 10 years in, but what you've got to commit yourself to, what we've got to do collectively and individually is we've got to commit ourselves to walking with him even when we can't see the end thing, the end time. How all this is going to connect. But over time, God will work through our experiences to bring about conviction if we stay with him. I mean, you've got plenty of examples of this. I think about people like uh, the apostles who on that Thursday night, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, and they all ran. All took off running. Peter followed from a distance, you know, but, or John followed from a distance. But Peter, Peter had just that very night said, Lord, the rest of these guys may run, but I guarantee you I'll never will. I never will. So Peter outside the hall of Pilate that very night was asked three times. You were with Jesus, weren't you? Three times. You know what he said? Jesus who? Who are you talking about? I don't know. You've got, you've got a group of disciples, apostles who had experienced a lot of things with Jesus, but their faith was slowly growing. At that point, it wasn't where it needed to be. Peter, who denied the Lord three times on Thursday night, seven weeks later, stood up in front of a crowd and preached the gospel of Jesus. And for the rest of his life, Peter preached about Jesus. And, and according to traditions, which we believe to be accurate, gave his life in being crucified upside down for his faith in Jesus Christ. As well, Paul was beheaded, you know, Andrew was crucified, Aunt James was beheaded, on and on. These guys who ran on Thursday night ended up giving their lives for Jesus. Why? Because they lived with him and they learned to trust him. They learned that he is a faithful God. We've got to live with him. We've got to live with him. We also have to talk to him. You know, I, I like this back up in the chapter. In verses 26 and 27, if you're there in Romans 8... Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
I don't trust you like I should. Lord, will you help me in that? The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know what's going on there? What we need to do, you say, Chuck, preacher, God, I want to trust you, Lord. I want to trust you. How do I do that? Live with him. Let, let God show you. Over time, let God show you. Live with him. Don't walk away from him when it gets hard. Don't walk away from him when it gets confusing. Don't walk away from him when you don't understand how this is going to work. Live with him and he'll show you. Number two, talk to him. It doesn't matter so much what you say. It only matters that you're saying it. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. The Spirit intercedes. I don't even know what to pray. You don't know what to pray. Lord, how do I ask this? What do I say? What's the, what are the correct words? I really don't think it's... I don't want to act like it doesn't matter what you say. I just think God wants you to talk to Him. He wants you to put it in whatever words you have. They don't have to sound good. They don't have to sound holy. Just talk to Him. The Spirit's going to make it all right. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. He helps us in our weakness. These groanings that are too deep for words, and he searches hearts. He knows what you need. He knows what you're trying to say, and he'll make it okay. Just talk to him. Talk to him. Talk to him. Ask God to help you. I love that story where the, the man you know, had this son who was having this problem with some sort of demonic possession, you know, and Jesus has this conversation with him. I, I love the statement. Um, he says, Lord, I believe. You remember how he finished this? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You ever pray that prayer? Pray that prayer. Lord, I trust in you, but I don't trust in you fully. I trust in you, but I want to trust in you consistently. I trust in you, but it's okay. You can handle it. Talk to him. Talk to him. Listen to him. Look back in verse 16. As you live with him, as you talk to him, learn to discern his voice. Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And in the context of this chapter, I think it's a pretty neat thing what he's saying. You live with God, you pray to God, the Spirit intercedes for you, and what happens is over time you learn to discern the voice of the Spirit as God is working in your life to, br to bring about what he, what he wants in your life, to bring about that confidence. So it, it doesn't happen overnight. You don't come up out of the baptistry. You don't pray the prayer tonight and tomorrow morning all your anxieties are forevermore gone. But it is a progression. It's a lifetime. You're walking with him. You are talking to him. You're learning to listen to his voice as the spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are the child of God, a God who's sovereign, who is omnipotent, who's omniscient, and who's omnibenevolent. You learn to trust that over, over time as you listen to him as you discern his voice, as you see his fingerprints all over your life. You ever sense that? Over, I mean, you, you're dealing with something and then, then on the other side of it, oh, Lord, now I, I see your fingerprints on that. I see what you were doing. Why couldn't I see that? It's what happens. God does that in us and we remember him. We're going to close this lesson today by going back where we started. The longer I live, the more I preach, the more I read the Bible, the more I come to this conclusion. Most of our questions find their answer in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
most of the things we wrestle with, most of the doubts, most of the anxieties would be removed if we only spent more time going back to Calvary. Some people call that a as we, as we learn to, to realize this and, and, and answer the questions we have at the cross, some people call that a developing a cruciform perspective. What that means is you live a cross-shaped life. You, you, learn to, you learn to interpret everything through the cross. You learn to think, you learn to act, you learn to pray, you learn to plan. Everything that you do is filtered through the cross. It's a cruciform, a cross-shaped life. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. Look at our text again. Especially verse 32. I told you I'd circle back and come back here, and that's where we're going to end up. Verse 32. How do I know that God is trustworthy? How do I know that he's got my best interest at heart? How do I know that he's going to work this thing out? How do I know that he's going to be able to take all these different strands of my life and your life and work that out according to my ultimate good? How, how, do, how do I know that? How do I know I serve an omnibenevolent, omnipotent God? Here's how. Paul answers it in verse 32. If we believe this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I think that's the theme verse for the entire Bible. How, if he will do that, what will he not do? If we believe in the cross, you know, if we believe as Christians, that's, that's, the, that's the central, that's the, Central tenet of our conviction, right? If we believe in the cross, if we believe that was God hanging on the cross, if we believe that he, as the innocent son of God, hung on the cross for six hours, he, the one who could call 10,000 angels, the one who said, let there be light, if we believe that that God took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, worked miracles, called abandoned disciples to himself, taught what he taught, did what he did, raised the dead from the dead, and gave them life back gave their lives back. If we believe in that, and we believe he hung there for six hours on that Friday, if we believe that that is the work of God, what is there that God won't do on behalf of us? You see the power of that conviction? That's where you see the omnibenevolence of God. That's where you see the love of God. If God will do that for his people, then do I ever doubt that God has my best interest in his heart? I shouldn't, right? You shouldn't, right? You may, from a human perspective, because of the world getting in you, <coughs> because of the whispers of Satan, you may sometimes think, I just don't know, I don't know if God, I don't, I don't know, I just don't know. Go back to the cross. And so, I sort of wish I could have preached this before communion today, because in communion, we do this weekly. And that is a weekly reminder. We ought to live this out daily in thinking about the cross, but it is a weekly reminder that's how much God loves us. And if he loves us that much, then I can trust him. We can trust him to act in ways that are consistent with our good, with what is our ultimate good, right? And if I ever doubt the omnipotence of God, that God is able, then I only go from Calvary, I go from Calvary on Friday to the tomb on Sunday. And there we see the stone rolled away and we peer inside and we see an empty tomb. We see the omnibenevolence on Friday. We see the, omnis the, um, the omnipotence on Sunday. 
If God can raise Jesus from the grave, if God has power over death, then is there something in your life or my life that God does not have power over? And so we see his love and we see his power and then we develop trust that God's going to work everything out. Now I know I'm not naive. I know life is complicated and it's messy. We're human beings. We're fallible and we, we start listening to voices we shouldn't listen to and we, we turn our eyes away from God. So I, I, don't, I don't mean to act like I've got this all packaged up in this neat and tidy box and go out here and do this and your life's going to be perfect from here on out. But I really think this is the answer. I really think this is the answer. It is learning to trust that God is omnipotent. He can do all things and He is omnibenevolent. He loves us more than we can even fathom. And God, therefore, is going to work things out. According to verse 28, He's going to work it all out for good. He may not do it the way I wish he would. He may not do it the easy way. But at the end of the day, we want to serve a God who's going to do things the right way, not the way that we want to tell him how it ought to be done, right? We don't want that kind of God. We want a big God, a God who can see all the possibilities and he can choose the path that he wants us to walk. And then we learn to trust him. I think the answer is at the cross. And that's the tomb on, at the tomb on Sunday. If you're not a Christian today, what we believe, what I've been talking to you about today, is, um, is we, believe that, we believe that God is, He wants to call you to Himself. We believe that He does that through Jesus. We believe that He does it through His, His Spirit as He leads you to faith in Jesus. We believe that the answers are at the cross. We believe that we are all sinful people and we've all chosen to rebel against Him. But what God does is He invites us all back into fellowship with Him. And you come to him believing that he died, believing that he was raised, believing that God is your God. You trust in him. That leads you to, to have a different attitude toward your, your brokenness, toward your sin. It's called repentance in the Bible. You, you, you believe it, and you believe it in strongly enough to confess it. You, you confess it with the way you talk, with the way you live. And then you're baptized, which is a cruciform response in the shape of the cross. You die to self, you're buried in water. You're raised up just as Jesus died, was buried, was raised up. So you imitate that in baptism and all your sins washed away by his blood. What a beautiful thing it is. We invite you today to make that confession, to begin your walk with, with him. We'll help you however we can. If you need to do that or you need to come back to him and ask for prayers or whatever we can do to help you spiritually, let us know. Let's stand and sing this song. I hope you'll come.